Jakub Mikanowski is a freelance journalist and author whose writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Guardian, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and many other publications. However, I'm going to be talking to Jakub today because last year he published a phenomenal book called Goodbye Eastern Europe, an intimate history of a divided land, which I, which I really swallowed like a, like a hungry hippo. Um, Jakub, welcome. Thanks, thanks so much for having me, Zelda. I got to tell you, you and your book are really godsend to this podcast. I mean, I'm, I'm from Eastern Europe, from Slovenia, to be more exact. And so for the past 30 episodes, I talked to some really incredible people having these amazing, illuminating conversations about the secrets of space and the Ottoman Empire and the hard problem of consciousness and uh, the Mongol invasions making up for when I didn't pay any attention in school. But all along, I was secretly hoping that I would eventually be able to, to also talk about, you know, my own corner of the world. But since the podcast is in English and since Eastern Europe, as we know, usually garners little interest unless some new Chernobyl or mm. a, a new war erupts there, I thought fat chance, you know. But here you are with this... Um, delicious book and i also gotta tell you why i enjoyed it so much it was because reading it sometimes felt almost like reading an an epic fantasy novel like an eastern european lord of the rings or something there's just so many colorful characters and places and stories in your book only they're real we just haven't heard of them on the other hand even we who come from Eastern Europe often believe in this myth that Eastern Europe is just a whole lot of gray. And that includes our histories as well. Your book shows that it's anything but. So, so maybe let's start here with Eastern Europe as the undesirable label as something you usually want to run away from. And let me read a couple of sentences from the beginning yeah. of the book real quick. I think it's in the prologue. Uh, yeah, here we go. A friend of mine, a professor of Polish and German history, once had a student ask in all seriousness whether it was true that Eastern Europe was a gray place where no one ever laughed. <laughs> With dour connotations like these, it is no wonder that people want to escape being associated with Eastern Europe. In the past 30 years, country after country has shed the label. Even before the fall of the Berlin Wall, Czechia, Slovakia, Hungary, and Poland all declared themselves part of Central Europe. Well, first of all, absolute traitors. And second of all, when and why do you think we acquired this image of being the trashy Europeans coming from a very gray place? That's an interesting question of, of, of when. And that, that anecdote, actually just uh, a professor who had that student, I just saw him a few months ago reminded him of this because um, actually that that he told that story and kind of got me working on the book a little bit i was like we need to we need to find some way to lift that cloud <laughs> of gloom you know because i there is there's a little bit of truth to it but there's a lot more going on on the surface right um historically there are a couple answers to that uh competing ones one is that it's it's all post-world war ii that has to do with the Soviet Union and socialism and the, the Iron Curtain 
And that solidified this big gap, this big break between capitalist West, socialist, increasingly backwards, increasingly kind of slow moving East. Um, there's a historian named Larry Wolf, though, uh, mm -hmm. at NYU, who makes the argument that it's actually a lot older, that that prejudice of, of the West against the East goes back to the 18th century and the Enlightenment, and that when you started having France, especially France, but also Scotland, also Germany, being kind of heartlands of philosophy and what they thought was the most modern, progressive European ideals of, of freedom, and then the beginning industrial revolution, that they started describing themselves as advanced and looking east and looking at bad roads in Poland and bad agriculture, backwards agriculture in right. Hungary and Slavonia and old, old kinds of old fashioned beliefs and vampires in down Croatia and the, what used to be the military boundary that they started defining that specifically Eastern idea. Um, so you could say it's it's pretty recent, it's a 20th century thing, or it's it's very old. Um, you could even find traces of it before that that goes all the way back to to the pagans that there used to be. You know, Western Europe became Europe is really an idea that comes out of Christendom and Christianity, right? Um, and that that Western Europe was the first to be Christian, the first to be increasingly homogenous and Christian, and Eastern Europe was this either Orthodox, which is a different kind of Christianity, but it stayed pagan, lots of it, much longer, kind of with Scandinavia. So you could say 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 200 years ago, or even 1,000 years ago. Do you think the pendulum will swing the other way? For example, these days, Western Europe or the West in general, you know, um, has to deal with its colonial legacy a lot, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that most countries in Eastern Europe, especially the smaller ones, don't have to deal with. And also, it's a little bit ironic because with our generation, it's quite often the opposite. We look at our parents' photos when they were younger and we see the relative prosperity that they enjoyed after the Second World War mm -hmm. in Yugoslavia, the holidays in Croatia, the apartments they bought for peanuts, the jobs waiting for them, after graduation, the friendships with the with the people from the other republics. There's even a, a name for it back home. We call it Yugo Nostalgia. Um, we miss it even though we haven't really lived in it. That's interesting. I think it really varies. And I've heard absolutely that, that Yugo Nostalgia, I was um I was in North Macedonia, Macedonia, on Lake Ohred on in a cab, a gypsy cab, like a unofficial cab you yeah. to get to albania right with a bunch and you know you pile in and we had a some sir some people from serbia some people from macedonia some people from um croatia everyone's staying around the lake and i can understand serbian enough to actually macedonian i can't understand at all but serbian i can kind of follow nice. from russian and it was absolutely that conversation of like under tito it was great that we had we all came here for vacation and everyone was friends, and everyone played by the lake. Because these are people who had been coming to Lake Ohrid, you know, since for forty years, uh, pensioners. And that that feeling of it, back in the day, it was better. That's much, you know, but that's much stronger in former Yugoslavia. In Poland, you almost never hear that. Right, right. Poland has very little because the also the economy was so bad in the eighties. Yeah, kind of wiped out most of that um those feelings. So you have. 
it, it ranges where people feel the most affection as a past. It's been interesting to see in East, I don't really write about East Germany very much. I kind of yeah. avoid it. But this year, there's been a real kind of debate right. about yep. the East German past and people, and it does kind of divide generationally. People who are very young when uh, the wall came down do look back. And there's this book by Katya Hoyer who looks back really fondly at the incredible, the really solid social services, the really like cheap apartments, great childcare, uh, solid vacation time and say, you know, this seems, this seems great. And then they're like a different generation older is like, well, you don't, you know, you don't see the Stasi, you don't see the border patrol, you don't see how the surveillance and it really divides, uh, in terms of the memory is disputed in a lot of places. Romania, you kind of get both. Mm. Um, so it's interesting. So the reevaluation is going on. And I admit, I have some of that, you know, ambivalence because of, because I do look, you know, there's a part of that, that, that past, especially the part where you had solid housing and solid employment that seems very attractive. Uh, so I think people are reevaluating it, but it depends who and really divide, like will break down based on country and generation. Maybe it's also a, yeah, like you said, a generation, a generational thing because the generation of my parents, they were the ones looking towards the West yep. and the ones who were kind of driving this movement for uh, the independent, the establishment of independent countries and, and so forth. But interesting, you mentioned Germany because I lived in Berlin for many years and I remember talking to a gentleman who was about 50 years old and he actually escaped from East Berlin to West Berlin when he was 16 years old, along with his two brothers. And, but these days he said, um, he also feels nostalgic for, for, um, for Eastern Germany. He said there was more sense of solidarity and sort of brotherhood and neighbor was helping neighbor sort of like maybe looking at the past with rose tinted glasses, but it's hard to just ascribe it to that. You know, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting debate. It's interesting. I think that a lot of the post 89 national narratives are very much about rejecting that past very much in Hungary, very much in, uh, Poland, very much in, I think, the former Baltics, you know, the, the, the post-45 past. You really reject and push away. There's also an achievement, a, like an ambiguous achievement. I found, looking at kind of socialist realist art from that era, I went to Albania. Nice. They have a museum of just fantastic, actually, museums closed because of an earthquake, but when you could go, mm. the Albanian National Museum, just full of socialist realist, like, Ho, you know, Hoja-era art. All, every painting is you know, burly men building power lines or working in a steel forge or women with Kalishnikovs um, teaching literacy or, or doing exercises. Like this very Hojaite Maoist art and it looked great. Mm. It, there's something that was like, it used to be, I think, like 30 years ago, you'd be like, well, this is just the emptiest, most of rote propaganda. And now it's so different from aesthetics of the, of the present. Um, it or divorced from message, divorced from, you know, yeah. supporting message. It, it looked, it was like really neat. Yeah, and people badass. were just really enjoying it. It looked right. so cool. Yeah. It's so interesting. You go to like places that have that massive socialist realist architecture. I went to like a, she tortured my wife by going to places. We'd, we'd go on vacation and be like, 
we're going to go to wine country. We're going to do a little bit of spa, but in between, I have to go visit some gulags. And I have to visit some old steel mills for my for my book. And we're like, so we'd go to like a Stalinist era steel mill um, city that used to be called Stalin Varosh, now Dunai Varosh, but was Stalin's towns, and where they built a you know from from nothing, from just a from mud, they built these giant steel works to create the new man and create the new sense of being. And I think for for a generation, it was like, well, this is horrible. And now you see the state, and, and they they built the factory, and the factory is also this kind of almost temple. You know, it has porticos, it has columns, and it has huge statues and and murals of workers and peasants and people across time building and baking and forging, and it's it's visually, I think, really phenomenally striking. But the movement in Poland, for instance, has been to very much to destroy, condemn, tear down. Um, and I'm really against that. I think it, I think it all belongs, not that the period was, was good or positive or that people's lives were great, but that story is worth preserving. And the visual impact, I actually love that in Albania that they actually very much reject the political legacy of, of that dictatorship, but they have made space for the, cultural product of it and that you can still kind of see and appreciate and have that layered history of you know various epics each with their own style um but it's very it's very dynamic what's happening you know in the in the baltics and hungary the move is very much to exclude and, and destroy in czech czech and Slo czechia and slovakia will kind of go back and forth on what they do but that past is hungary probably it's the most under contention, Romania too, but it's it keeps changing how people regard it, and I think it'll continue to keep changing. Um, my hope is that eventually it can like become like it's now really part of politics. You know, it's a football that you can pass around that it becomes history, and that you can have some distance towards and both preserve, appreciate, and criticize mm. all at once. Have you ever been to Berlin? I lived in Berlin for a for a summer trying to trying to learn some German. Oh, okay. Um, wow. Uh, and as and Oscar, got as Oscar yeah. Wilde said, life is too short to learn German. So I understand. <laughs> well, I didn't. Pain. I didn't do very well, but I, I got to where I could read the newspaper, and uh, I passed the translation exam. I had to, as a historian, you have to know some German. So yeah, yeah I lived on in right on the border between Kreuzberg and Newcomb on the canal. Ooh, nice. A very the cool hipster place. location. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody wants to live there. But um it's so great. you've probably seen the Soviet memorial there in Yeah. Treptow Park. That's another example of this communist baroque kind of mm -hmm. um I I just think it looks absolutely badass. This giant park and then on top of it this huge statue of a Russian soldier with a sword uh, standing on a broken swastika with a saved with a German child that he saved from the melee of the combat. Yeah. And, I, I like them. I and mean, Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, yeah, has of that tradition of, of the Spomeniks, the yeah. which are now they become kind of very cool, and people really like look look for them. But the Tito era abstract sculptural monuments that look kind of like spaceships. Yeah, those are amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Yasenovats, for example. Yeah, and, and, that's yeah, the, yeah. the flower. And then they're, they're all over the, the former. And, uh, and they started to be like dis dismantled, destroyed, forgotten. And now there's a movement to, to try and get them back. And there's a great photo book about them. But if anyone, if any listener 
is like it's Spominik, S-P-O-M-N-I-K, and there's a great photo book, and they all they kind of look like a, these alien geometrical objects that crash landed in in the Balkans. Um, but they they're commemorating the world mostly World War II monuments, but done in this abstract figurative style of starbursts and strange kind of flower shapes and modern art, but Tito's politics very 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 cool, and I hope that they you know, stop being torn down. Some places they're treated with a lot of respect. Some places they've been allowed to uh, really just fall apart. Mm. And some were destroyed in the wars in the 90s. How is it in the United States being associated or coming from Eastern Europe? I remember your former first lady, who is Slovenian, Melania, mm -hmm. for, a, for a long time she pretended that she was Austrian and she even spelled her surname in a uh -huh. different way. Uh, she added an S and yeah. a, a U instead of a, a Slovenian V. So instead of Knaus, she was Knaus SS. Um, but then I think uh, there was too much spotlight on her when her husband uh, became the president or, you know, uh, was a candidate. And she couldn't <laughs> pretend to be Austrian anymore. And I also, I, don't, I didn't know this before, but I had an American friend when I was living in Berlin. She was awesome. Shout out to Linda from Colorado. And we were talking one day um, and she said, you know, you're not really white, white, you're ethnic white in the States. Mm. Um, she said, my mom would be kind of scared of you. So it's different. And I never heard that before. It was such an interesting comment. And then I, <laughs> I kind of loved it. And then I watched the documentary about it and um, about the immigration from Eastern Europe to the, to the United States. And there really was such a thing as an ethnic white, mm -hmm. you know, Polish, Czech, whatever. And these people usually relegated to the worst jobs because there were some racist theories going around that they can handle um, menial jobs better because they're more resistant to dirt and mud and all sorts of like these kind of stereotypes. Um, is that image still there? A little bit? So I would say barely. I see. Um, but you know what? There's a little bit of it linked. I'll, I'll say it, it's. This is a historian. Maybe this is too finicky. But a hundred years ago, yeah. a, little, a little over a hundred years ago, that that first big wave of Eastern European migrants, they really were treated. And I come from a. I, I grew up in a part of Pennsylvania that had a ton of that migration. Actually, a lot of Slovenes, uh, a lot oh, of Slovaks, Slovenes, people work who came to work in coal mines. Mm. In iron, there's a big coal area, so very difficult menial work. That um, tons of Slovenes, Slovaks, a little bit Hungarians, Czechs, Poles, uh, and that they were kind of at the bottom of the pecking, of kind of the bottom of the white pecking order. Right, they were ethnic right. whites, and that there was a, the difference between wasps, like yeah, yeah. white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, very kind of mainland traditional, where white people are. And then a level below that Irish, and then kind of a level below that um, Eastern European. There's an old term called Bohunk. I don't think anyone's <laughs> ever heard that, but that's Bohemian Hungarian. Wow! And, and they would like you would you would get Bohunks, and they would have the worst. They wouldn't know any. No one would be able to communicate with them, and they'd have to carry like I like like molten steel, the stuff that's really like hazardous because it's, it's Pennsylvania steel country. Yeah. But that's a hundred years ago, right. and those people are mostly now. Like Pittsburgh is full of third, fourth generation Slovaks and, and Slovenes, yeah, yeah, who 
you know, still go to church and, and have ethnic food, but that sense of difference from, you know, like Protestant Anglo Americans is very slight, um, because it's been so long. Where there is pre, you know, newer immigrants. And when I was a kid, that, that was us. We actually had neighbors who called us the beasts from the East and, and were kind of, I had, I had some schoolyard problems and, and eggs were thrown in our car. And there's a little bit of anti-immigrant animus in that, but also hard to pin down exactly. But I think there are associations, especially with the Balkan, the kind of vaguely yeah. Balkan, that the Balkans are kind of vaguely criminal. <laughs> the Poland area is people who work in still fresh arrivals from Poland. Clean, you have a lot of cleaning ladies from Poland. So people, and actually yeah. my mom and aunt worked at times as cleaning ladies mm. or as nannies. My cousin worked as a nanny. So those jobs and that there's something kind of menial about part of the area and kind of somewhat criminal about the other part of the area. Oh, and people course. who don't, but people will, and movies are bad with that. Like there's a movie series called Taken and oh, the gangsters yeah. are Albanian. Yeah. And people yeah, don't yeah. know where, but people will be like, where, where is Albania? And I'm, I'm very affectionate. I really love Albania and I've written about it and spent a lot of time there. But these are almost floating names for people. They very, for a lot of Americans, they couldn't find it on a map. But somehow that kind of former Yugoslavia zone, Albania, Bulgaria is, means something yeah. kind of gangsterish. And Poland is sort of, you know, menial labor made something like that and then russia's vaguely you know is threatening in a different way yeah uh, and then parts parts of it honestly like lithuania latvia slovakia people just have no idea that's just a question mark so there there are prejudices still floating around but they're a little bit vague right and um and not very you know i don't think there's a lot of discrimination based on that but right, there are right, right. prejudices yeah 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 I mean, yeah, it's funny that people from the Balkans in Hollywood usually kidnap Liam Neeson's daughters. Unfortunately, and, <laughs> and it. yeah, it um, um, it really. Should. But to be honest, I mean, it's similar in Western Europe. Let's yeah. let's not just blame America because I was, you know, when I was working in Berlin after three years, my boss would, my German boss would still introduce me as Zaza from Serbia. Oh no, you know. I was like, okay, I, you know, yeah, here we go. But it's fine. It's uh, or, or even sometimes even Siberia, which was <laughs> oh, no. uh, quite oh, quite amazing. Terrible. Yeah. Um. Anyway, let's rewind all the way back. Yeah. To the beginning. The big question: Where do Slavs come from? And how is it possible that the biggest ethno linguistic group in Europe just kind of teleports itself onto the stage? from seemingly out of nowhere and then occupy such a large uh, chunk of land? That's that's the $10,000 question. Yeah. That's a question with I know, no, sorry. no good answer and 100, 100 bad ones. Um, it's a mor if, you, if you really start reading into it, it's a, it's a morass of competing theories and, and not very... Very little evidence, and I actually think that is going to. I think that's a, that's one of these questions, though, that I think might be answered in our lifetime. I think there's there's hope that a lot more will be discovered 
and is being discovered right now, especially because of uh, work on ancient genetics, where yep. you can pull out, you know, sequence genes of, of bodies that were buried 1,500, 1,600 years ago. And the more of that work that, that gets done, and a lot of it was this big study that just came out um, by a Basque University, but of, of Balkan, of, of medieval, dark age Balkan genes, that we're actually going to be able to, to figure out a little bit what that mo- movement of slobs looked like and where it came from. But right now, it's, it's a mess. Because honestly, every country, every Slavic country traditionally, especially the North, Northern Slavic countries claim them like we'll just put themselves as a put themselves forward as a homeland. Yeah, Poland says they come from Poland. Ukraine says they come from Ukraine. Russia will say they come from Russia, and the evidence is so sparse because they just in the written record they just show up all of a sudden and they show up where people write about them is mostly in Greece and close to the Byzantium. Yeah, and they had no idea where they were coming from. So there's a theory that (laughs) they were all over. But that idea of some kind of more collective unity or collective identity, if it existed, started happening because they were fighting for and against the Byzantines. And so paradoxically, there's a theory that happened kind of in that along the Danube where Bulgaria and Romania are now. But that really, it's, it's a lot of speculation. Um, there's also signs now from that genetic work that there was a lot of north, like people moving from north to the south, which has been doubted at the past but from where and how i have a few more thoughts about that but that's the okay. that's the big picture but in the book you do mention a theory that slavs actually come from romania where ironically there is no slavs now so that's the that's the idea is that when the byzantium this byzantine empire was fortifying itself and starting to really try and defend the balkans try and create that new frontier uh, create, create a line along the Danube. Justinian uh, refortified it and started hiring lots of mercenaries, and it was having a lot of attacks. And so it's on that border, what's now Rush, southern Romania, that something like Slavdom coalesced. And that is where the first mentions of Slavs all kind of happened there. There are attacks from Romania, from what's now Romania, that had no, no concept back then, towards Thessaloniki. And that area is where something proto-Slavic was happening. And it's very, um, it's a guy named Florin Kurta, who is Romanian. But he's maybe the most cutting edge and uh, a very respected scholar at University of Florida. A very kind of cutting edge book on the origin of the Slavs, but also a very controversial one. And kind of a, to me, a surprising idea because i grew up i grew up reading um polish books that were clear that slavs came from basically poland ukraine and then moved south um i find i so if you actually read his book Kurta's book i found it very persuasive but it doesn't have a smoking gun there's no single document or letter or or artifact that conclusively proves that case so it's it's one of these historical mysteries that I find hugely compelling. I will read anything about it, but I don't think at this point it has a definite answer. How come Slavs before the advent of Christianity have no written records about themselves? 
they didn't, they didn't seem to write. Um, we didn't write. It's, it's a, and, and then the, the shame of it is that no one, when they became Christian, that we didn't have someone, and I include myself in this, that we didn't have someone writing down the old stories, writing down some of the old chronicles. Because that's what happened in Scandinavia, in Iceland. They became Christian. They had Latin writing, but they still cared about those old epics, pre-Christian stories, right. those Norse stories. And that same thing happened in Ireland and Wales where the Celts became Christian, but there was still, it was still valuable to write down some of the old stories. And we have almost none of that in the Slavic world. Um, you have to rely on archaeology. You have to rely on people who saw the Slav, the pagan, the Slavs when they were still pagan, Christians usually, but a few Muslims and Jews, but mostly Christians who, who saw Slavic religion being practiced, who saw Slavs in the pre-Christian state, but we don't have any, any real native testimony. Um, even Lithuanians who, who aren't Slavic, but they, they seem to have believed similar things. They did not write them down, even though they stayed pagan until the 1370s. So you're talking really, you know, the Renaissance has already started. Uh, you know, it's the War of the Roses in England. And in Lithuania, you've got pagan dukes, pagan rulers, yeah. a whole pagan organization, uh, probably similar to what the pagan Slavs were like. Uh, it's hard to tell exactly how different. And they didn't write, you know, to have written down at least a myth or a song clearly. But we have to rely on everything, you know, post, post-conversion. Eventually, we do get these proto-states or kingdoms in Eastern Europe. In the book, you talk about the fact that unlike in other kingdoms at the time, whose royal dynasties usually had some sort of a fantastical grand story of how they ascended the throne, in the Slavic kingdoms, these narratives were much more modest, sometimes almost cute. Usually they talked about a lucky peasant or a farmer who happened to become a king. Um, in reality, though, a lot of these dynasties established themselves with the help of a little industry called slavery. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think this is the dirty, dirty secret of, of medieval Slavdom. Um, so that's not something I... I never I heard about that before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And growing up, when I went to like Polish school, this is not the story you, you, you exactly. get told. Yep. You get told the traditional story. And the story that's passed down from the Middle Ages is, these, even as, as pagans, that these, these peasants... Different, different hardworking peasants or wheelwrights or craftsmen in, in Poland or Czechoslovakia. And actually in, I think Slovenia has kind of a similar story with the, the Dukes of Corinthia and what yeah, they yeah, were yeah, supposed yeah. to be. Carantania. Yeah. That it's, um, and I think that was all covered because the archaeology and the outside chronicles make it pretty clear what was happening on the edge of Christian, on the Christian space. This is the 900s. There was a gold rush in kind of that, that Slavic barbarian non-Christian world. And the gold rush was the slave trade. You could not enslave Christians. You could enslave pagans. And you could sell, there was an enormous appetite for slaves, especially for Slavic slaves in, uh, the Middle East, in Iran, Iraq, 
and they had an enormous amount of silver. They had big silver mines. There was a big appetite for this. There was also an appetite for it in Venice and and in Spain. Uh, so the kingdoms that started looks like they got their start by hiring lots of mercenaries, hiring their own soldiers, protecting an area, and then raiding outside of it, grabbing people, and then sending them by caravan to other places. And that seems that in Slovenia too, uh, Samo's kingdom, right? That kind of not clear. It's, I mean, that seems to have been a Frankish slave trader who started on the edge of that Carolingian world. You could go past, you know, it's kind of like the Wild West in reverse, the Wild East, that you get beyond the Christian frontier and out in these tribes, you could start, if you could have enough armed followers, you could start raiding and you could start selling. And those captives were the biggest industry in, in Europe. Um, cause each slave was worth a, an amount of silver. There was a little bit of other trading, fur, beeswax, forest things, but it was slavery that was the economic driver. And ultimately the, with an economic push like that and a lot of silver flowing in, you could start building a state. You could go from being a tribe to having fort, fortifications, roads, an army, a duke, a king. But that's not a story people wanted to tell later. Because it's not a, not an attractive reality. So usually you had a warlord who had some warriors, and like you said, they had a little fort, and then they were expanding, all with the help of slave, uh, of, of yeah, raids and acquiring slaves that then they were selling all mm -hmm. throughout Europe. Um, wow, that's really fascinating, uh, especially because you know a lot of right wing narrative at least in Slovenia, probably it's similar in other Eastern European countries, revolves around the fact that these were some sort of proto-democratic kingdoms mm -hmm. where uh, milk and honey was flowing and um, equality reigned supreme. So it's really, really amusing that <laughs> the truth, at least based on archaeological um, yeah, evidence, is quite the opposite. <laughs> It's, it's a little, a little jarring. Yeah. Because the, it is. and they were, you know, a hundred years into having these kingdoms and they gave up, you know, they became Christian and they kind of gave up the slave trade. They wrote the prop, the chronicles tell these stories that are very kind of convincing. You're like, Oh, they chose, they chose someone from the people and they ruled with consent right, right. Yeah, and they yeah, listened yeah. to each other. And it's like, well, where did the, and then you, you dig in and you find these big jars of silver from the Middle East and you find, massacres and chains and you're like this doesn't quite line up so that's um that's a story that does not get told in schools but i think it's increasingly like clear that that seems to be the the truth behind um behind what was happening by the and, way why were slavic slaves so popular in the middle east and other places that's that's interesting uh a little bit of thousand you know this is a millennia ago but the the idea, at least in the Middle East, where we have surviving, is that there were two, they needed a lot of slaves because they were, um, actually Iraq, a very different world back then where Iraq was very irrigated, very cultivated, kind of the economic center of the world, huge need for manpower, yeah. both kind of labor and soldiers. And they used slaves for a lot of that. And the soldiers, they like to have people from Central Asia. They like to have Turks. Turks made really good soldiers they were good at writing they were good at archery um and slavs were seen as very good for domestic work for working in the palace for working 
with women for being ref refined. And the idea was that you, and also a lot of um, eunuchs on both sides, eunuchs being made. And it, and it became a trend. And I think those are the two big sources of, of slaves. Uh, that Viking, you know, Russia, Rus, comes out of this too, is that they were raiding in northern Russia, sending people down river, down the Dnieper, sending them to um, Baghdad, sending them to, to Baku, places like that. And uh, the Sakwaliba. We don't have any voice, you know, we have people writing from the, again, the other side, yeah, describing yeah. slaves. We don't have any slaves writing about themselves or writing about their own experiences. I mean, you know, actually, there was a Slavic slave revolt in Morocco at one point. Really? And a little, there was, yeah, and I didn't have this space in this book. Uh, Slavic slaves who worked in, in the Muslim part of Spain and Morocco, they were actually one country, revolted, and for a while they had their own little rebel kingdom somewhere in northern Morocco, and they left no records. It's against this problem of early Slavic history, very little writing. But there was also, there was Slavic slavery, there's also Slavic slave revolt. But all of that is so shadowy and so hard to pin down. Um, but that, that Abbasid world, that world of 10th century Baghdad, also had lots of East African slaves. They also had their own, their own revolt in Bahrain. So they had a really, really different world of, of multiple kinds of slavery, in which Slavs fe featured as one, one of those. Interesting, because I had a historian of the Ottoman Empire on the podcast, and he was also talking about the Devshirme system and about yeah. it, slaves coming from the Balkans into the Ottoman Empire later. And they were um, reputed for being good soldiers, the Janissaries and administrators. So it, it kind of changes, I see, from period yeah. to period. It kind of kind of swings. Because, yeah, people, the Serbs were... Right. The Turks looked at the Serbs as great soldiers. Yeah, yeah. And the Greeks as great sailors and, and kind of had, had a different way of uh, evaluating yeah. those groups. Anyway, one of the main threads of the book that I found fascinating is the fact that historically Eastern Europe was always a place of great diversity, where people of different religions, speaking different languages, doing different things, lived side by side, and they did so for centuries, much more so than Western Europe, at least at the time. And that's another blind spot we usually have about Eastern Europe, especially since, well, except maybe Russia, uh, most Eastern European countries today are pretty homogeneous places mm -hmm. when we compare them to the West. Anyway, how come medieval European rulers kind of welcomed immigration with such open arms at the time? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because the pattern, kind of big picture-wise, is that Western Europe used to be diverse in similar ways, just like we were talking about uh, Muslim Spain. Spain had that, or Iberia had that combination of Jews and Muslims and Christians and, and Al-Andalus and the, the kind of melting pot of different cultures. Um, France had that, Southern France had that too. Italy, Sicily used to be a Muslim area. They used to be a lot more Jews in France and England and, and Germany. But as those countries kind of became more established, rigid kingdoms, like it's more stable, going from kind of mixtures of the different distributed power of dukes and, and local rulers to full established states, they became more and more homogenous. So that the 
end of that process is that moment in 1492 in Spain, when Spain yeah. pushes, conquers the last Muslim kingdom and simultaneously expels its Jews. And that last trace of that kind of diverse Western European world gets kicked out. And where do the Jews go? Mostly go to, to Morocco and the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans. Um, and, and the Muslims also go to, go to Northern, North Africa and sometimes the Ottoman Empire. And meanwhile, the Eastern European powers have a great need for manpower, have a great need for development, have, have need for people who can connect them to a wider world commercially and a wider world religiously and have, have some fighting skills. So they are inviting foreigners in a, in a, in a big way in a consistent way, making room for for them. So Poland, Lithuania, which is a vast kingdom at some point, becomes the real homeland of Europe's Jews, and Eastern Europe becomes this cradle, really, of world or Ashkenazi Jewry. You have Muslim tribes coming in, and or nomads, and being also recruited by Hungary and by, by Lithuania to be mercenaries. And then you have that Ottoman push that brings brings the actual Ottoman Muslim rulers and you also have other nomads coming in from Anatolia and from the, the steppes. Uh, and so it becomes a melting pot, partly from conquest, partly through deliberate strategy of needing, and also needing Western Europeans, asking like Germans to come, to be miners, to be, to work in and develop towns. Economic development in Eastern Europe happened by inviting people from outside, from East and West, uh, by having traders come in. Armenians, Greeks, or Germans, or Scots from all over. Um, Scots were, there was a big Scottish immigration at one point, and, and there were a lot of Polish Scots, so different groups get established, and became very diverse that way. So to the point that in the Eastern European pattern was that countryside would have one language, you know, the peasantry would have one language, and cities or any towns would be completely different from the surrounding countryside, and usually with different pe- groups in that and the landlords would be something else yeah so you have this very segmented very um kind of layer cake of a society in which each layer has a different language and religion and ethnicity but they're all living very close to each other they're all related kind of by occupation could you talk about this dynamic of day-to-day life um at that time of all these like very different communities at the time i like you said i think in the book you say they're like layers of cake mm-hmm. right how did these it's people hard. manage to coexist and what did that look like well people live very close together and this pattern really lasted up to deep into the 19th century some places the 20th century and the specifics of it were different based on place to place right but the broad pattern and i think this is true from slovenia to estonia down to, to romania um, in most places and very different from Western Europe, different, different from like central Russia too, in which in Russia you have different castes. Essentially you have serfs and you have merchants and you have nobles, but they're all Russian. They're all Russian Orthodox or Russian speaking. In a place like what's now Ukraine or it's Poland, say, um, Eastern Poland, Western Ukraine, the peasants would be Ukrainian. Their landowner would be Polish. So the peasants would be Ukrainian, Eastern Orthodox, the landowner is Polish Catholic, and all the merchants in town are going to be Jewish and Yiddish speaking. So you have three languages. And in a town, in a village of like 200 people, you'll have all three of those. You'll have a little Catholic church for the landowner. You'll have a bigger Orthodox church for the peasants. You'll have the, the Jewish enclave 
buying and selling things. And each kept separate by law and by custom. You can't really cross between those because mm-hmm. you switch. You're not really allowed to. Um, intermarriage is difficult. Switching professions is, or switching le- kind of caste level is prohibited. So people are kept very narrowly in their, uh, in their stratum of society. And they don't, they interact and they're interdependent. But they also don't know that much about each other. Uh, you know, Slovenia might be simpler, but it had that, you know, the Czechia, um, Croatia, Slovenia of often German speaking landowners, Slavic speaking peasants, and then towns that are something in between. And often German, you know, German predominates. Uh, in Romania, you have German speaking towns, Hungarian, in Transylvania, Hungarian landowners, and Romanian peasants. And so that pattern, each part of that three or four layer cake, the flavors change, but that structure is the same. And it's very different than German. You never find that in like, you know, um, was a German town in like Neckar or Frankfurt. Every, you have different professions, but everyone's German. Everyone's usually by law, one kind of Protestant or one kind of Catholic, and everyone has to be that same thing. In Eastern Europe, it's never the case. You almost always have at least two, three, or four of these different linguistic social layers. All right. So like you said, these communities did live side by side, but it wasn't some sort of utopia. It wasn't exactly Disneyland, though. Despite living side by side, religious and ethnic borders weren't easy to cross, especially between landlords and serfs or peasants, right? That's also why... Yeah. yeah, in Slovenia, for example, where the landlords, like you said, were always German or Italian, we have this proud history of unsuccessful peasant rebellions mm-hmm. that were always <laughs> brutally repressed. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it is, it's easy to idealize. It is a, it is a pre, it's a world that is, is genuinely pre-modern and it lasts for a long time. Yeah. And has this ability, you have like incredible, Social diversity in very tight spaces. You know, a, a town of, um, 1500 people could have four religions. And I can think, like, I can point to them, like, you look at the maps, like a little town, but four different, uh, neighborhoods. Each speaks a different language. Each goes to a different church and they, they coexist, but that doesn't mean people like each other and they don't exactly, you know, and they're kept separate. And it's a world that runs on inequality. Where inequality is is woven into everything, and empire because it's a world of empires. These empires run on inequality. Having these uh, groups at odds with each other actually strengthens the empire because you play different groups against each other. You have landowners who are dependent on the center because they can't depend; they have nothing in common with the people that are, um, who are their tenants, who are their, their serfs. Uh, you have merchants who owe everything to the lord of the area because they are separate religiously from all the people around them. So there's all this suspicion and hostility. And yet you also have a kind of real diversity that you know, that really vanishes with this. Like, real diversity may be wrong, but the modern state that is predicated on equality, you have to start getting rid of that. You know, when France becomes a modern country, gets rid of its king, gets rid of a French Revolution, has this model of a new nation state, you try and teach everyone one language, try and have everyone be in, you know, serve some time in the army, everyone go to the same kind of elementary school. 
and turn people into little, you know, clones of each other. And you try and get rid of that diversity and have a homogeneous country. Uh, in Eastern Europe, that mostly happens through violence, through um, genocide, ethnic um, cleansing, and also movement of borders, movement of uh, you know, popular flight movement of research and some assimilation and all those together very violently, very late for the European story, starting late 19th century, but really accelerating in the 20th yeah. century and really happening in the biggest way uh, in, in World War II and after that really kind of destroys this world. So although it was kind of hard and undesirable, interactions between communities do happen. Um, you describe this wonderfully in the book, how I'm probably not going to get it right, but how, but how sometimes Catholics would go to a Muslim healer, um, and and then or a, or a rabbi or borrow each other's saints, stuff like this. That's really kind of endearing. Could you talk about a little bit more about these uh, intercommunity interactions? How did they so, play out, and when did they? And how come this was sometimes tolerated? How come this was sometimes fine? So at the official level. Religions were kept, and, and usually all these separations are all overlapping religious, yeah. linguistic, ethnic. All those things are different at once. And at the official level, there's not supposed to be much mixing. At the official level, definitely Catholics and Jews aren't allowed to, on both sides, you cannot transgress that boundary at all. Um, Orthodox Muslim and Muslim and Orthodox Christian also officially, according to the church elders, according to the Muslim elders, no mix. At the folk level, where people are living next to each other, living literally side by side, door to door, right. uh, village to village, tremendous amount of a contact, especially at the level of kind of folk healing, folk remedy, folk magic, you know, in a world without medicine, with very little, you know, very low literacy and very low you know, university training. This is a world where folklore is the everyday currency of, of life. You have all this like living context, and if you, you know, get down to that level and read about what people were doing, and historically, it's often hard. You know, histori histories are usually written at this like high level of the officials, yeah. but you can't not the low level of regular village life. But there is stuff from that, and you discover Christians would go to to ma major rabbis to get blessings um, to. And different things would be valuable. People really believe that rabbis could cure infertility, regardless of religion. So Catholic women would go to, to, to Jewish rabbis for that. Jews believe that Muslims, and at least in Lithuania, were really good at treating madness, treating um, mental disorders. So they would go and send, if they had a, a relative with a uh, mental disability, they would send them to live with Tartars, to, to live with Muslims. Because that was thought somehow that change would, would help. In, in Albania and in the Balkans, you would have shared Christmases. You'd, Muslims coming over to their Christian neighbors for Christmas. Muslim, Christians going to their neighbors for, Christians going to their Muslim neighbors for Bayram. Um, clans that would split and can maintain, in Albania, would have clans that would have a Christian branch and a Muslim branch, but all related, and they would exchange, uh, ceremonies, exchange saints. And, and, and holiness would kind of circulate that way. And so there wasn't, you know, at the official level, even at the legal level, 
big hard walls at the the local level lots of kind of change you know bartering and exchanging and circulating and seeing pragmatic value in each other is essentially magic you know jews could be lucky they could be unlucky muslims could be you know could regard christian ceremonies as, as part of their own and actually part of their so this this very fluid world that you have to kind of get back to uh, that made me think of the last chapters of the book when you described some huge, I don't know if it's annual or if it's always open Polish market in Warsaw oh, yeah. where you could get anything. But then people would a lot of the times have a picture of a Jew in their home mm -hmm. that they would get from there. And that the the reasoning was that he would invite money into into your house. But then for the Sabbath, you have to put the picture down because he needs his day of rest. And That's you right. have to turn him away from the door, right? So the money mm -hmm. doesn't leave <laughs> your domicile. <laughs> and it's very... It's, I'm a I'm a Polish Jew. I'm from a mixed Polish yeah. Jewish family. So this is kind of really strange to be exoticized in that way. Right. This, is, this is not the 19th century. This is the... Um, this is after this bizarre, the World War, right? Well, no, this is after the, the 1993. So this oh, is bizarre. I, I would right. go to. Right, right. It, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It got bold. So it doesn't exist anymore. It got bulldozed because of the Euros, when uh, when the soccer tournament was in Poland, yep. they leveled this incredible, gigantic bazaar, maybe the biggest in Eastern Europe, and put a giant soccer stadium on it. So it's the, if anyone knows Warsaw, it's in Prague, it's on the other side of the river. Um, so before 2010, it was this enormous bazaar that in the night, especially in the early 90s, was, was the clearinghouse of all of Eastern Europe for a uh, Kind of cheetah. in Polish we say tandeta. Uh, there's a Slovene version of that, but kind of kind of um, cheap socks, crappy lingerie, uh, anything cheap and affordable and mass produced and brought yeah. in by by truck or by train from China or Korea or Russia or wherever. No, we had those in the Balkans, yeah. only not on that scale. So this yeah. was kind of the bazaar of bazaars, where all their bazaars would get their stuff. So the scale was enormous. And I, um, I talked to anthropologists who, who worked there because you could find people from all over Eastern Europe, but also thousands of Poles. And there was this belief, this folk belief, essentially surviving, of the lucky Jew, the Jew with a coin. Um, and for people outside, it was just like, oh, this is just a stereotype. Right. And it's like, yes, but it's also a kind of magical presence. It's almost like a fossil of another era of, of you actually, people believed in it. And use it just the way you described of like you, you position it and you sometimes would have an actual statue. Sometimes you have a photocopy of a thing and to try and keep people's luck going. Because this is a hard scrabble place. This is people, you know, sometimes selling, you know, two, two rusty nails, mismatched socks and a, and a pot and hoping to, to make money. Um, but you know, that, that is that little bit of that pre, pre, Modern magical world surviving. Right, right, right exactly. Yeah. Although now it's now it's a soccer stadium. Yeah, it's harder. All right. If we go back a little bit, for a time, right. I I believe, especially during the Enlightenment, the biggest capitals of Eastern Europe, such as Prague, became kind of delicious, almost rogues galleries, safe havens for some of the most memorable characters that existed at the time: obscure prophets, scammy alchemists, practitioners of the occult, also lots of legitimately smart people how did this sassy world in eastern europe come about 
You know, it's one of the many benefits of, of being weakly, politically, political weakness of having, when you don't have the strength to impose unity, you get a lot of diversity growing in the cracks. That, that pattern, both in Western Europe and in Russia, of having a strong state, you know, a Kremlin or a Rome or a, you know, that France of Louis the Fourteenth that can have bureaucrats go everywhere and uni- and, and turn them and make things very uniform drives that diversity. You know, literally, like Louis Louis the Fourteenth or some Protestants left in France drives them out. Uh, the Russians are as they're organizing, they're they recruit Muslims for a while and then they try and convert them. They try and push them out. There's a drive to to impose homogeneity. Eastern Europe slash Central Europe. Politically, much more confused, even when there are empires, like the Habsburg Empire, actually a pretty, when we say empire, empires in the sense of, yes, there was a lot of different pieces and they were big. But empire in terms of having a single kind of uniform power structure and everything depending on the center, usually not. Usually it's like pieces, you know, in Slovenia, it's that dukedom of Corinthian, the dukes had their own agenda, and Bohemia had its own electoral king and its own laws, and the you know, everything is Habsburg, but for a long time, the Habsburgs had very, had limited ways of imposing themselves. So you have all this stuff growing, and Poland-Lithuania was a mess. There was no, very little central authority. Romania was a mess. A lot of these countries were assembled out of pieces, and that central power was very weak. And in that, that allowed for all this growth. And actually, some people recruited diversity, and some people just had, they couldn't do anything about it. So there was no Inquisition in Poland. There was none of that drive to like impose Catholic unity. Uh, there was just a lot of space. The, the Ottomans didn't have great control over the Balkans for a lot of it. So you could have sects running away from Anatolia and people finding places like Bulgaria or Bosnia to, to do their own things that were different. And there wasn't a lot anyone could do about it. The benign neglect, in a way. Right. Writing and researching this book, who became your favorite out of these, um, what should we call it, outlaw characters? Mm. Or maybe not outlaw characters, but, you know, these these sassy, uh, you know, yeah. there's a lot of like uh, Roma kings and sort of like prophets that are just crossing one religion to another, uh, alchemists, scammers. There's a lot of absolutely colorful fantastic stories in the book but you must have one that's uh also a lot of the times very amusing but you must have some that's that really blew you away i i have a, a couple i have a lot i'll tell you one um because you mentioned the roma there's one i had never heard of and i think very people have heard of it. so roma woman named gina ranicic the poet um the poetess was a poetess yeah you could say croat although it's She's hard to pin down, but her name, she ends up living and dying in, in Croatia, that part of Croatia that's inland, that's next to Serbia. But she had this incredibly adventurous life. She belonged to a, a Roma band, a migrant, a, a roaming nomadic band that, that moved around, um, moved around what's now Croatia, Serbia, probably Austria in the early 19th century. Probably, probably she was born around 1830. And she has this incredibly adventurous life of living in Constantinople, in Adrianople, and, and having 
husbands who are bandits, who are uh, traitors, who are um, Ottoman dignitaries, and then she she has to she's abandoned by them. I can only even her story is so kind of wild and operatic. I can only tell a little bit of it. And then um, at the end of her life, she's an old woman. Um, very poor, very abandoned, and she meets an ethnographer, someone who's like gathering Roma stories, gathering Roma, uh, Roma folk poetry, Roma folk traditions, and he hears that there's this poet somewhere out in this little camp, you know, a Tabor, which is a migrant camp, and starts talking to her around the 1890s, and she's a very old woman, and she just unspools this incredibly complicated story that has these just, you know, Husbands who try to murder her, mur husbands she tries to murder, she's, she vanishes, she has to run away, uh, love affairs, crazy movements through, through every, every European country. Um, and she's also a really good poet, probably the first recorded Roma poet. She tells this, this man, this, uh, kind of German, Romanian, Polish man, her, her songs. And I found her, you know, in a, in a, in a book full of kind of stories like that. She stood out, and I could, because that's a novel waiting to be written. Someone to to tap into that, and you could, I could only kind of tell her story till like age twenty three, and it keeps going, it keeps just being wilder and crazier and shipwrecks. Um, and actually, she's a good poet, and she's just forgotten by history. And it's one of these stories because she, who does she belong to? The, the Eastern Europe story of like, is she Croatian? Maybe, but Croats don't, don't claim her. Is she Ottoman because she lived in Constantinople for a long time? Maybe, but they don't claim her. And Roma, you know, the, there's no Roma state. There's no Roma archive. There's no Roma like studies. So that doesn't, you know, have like a, that, that slot for her. She just belongs to the whole region as a whole, I think. Uh, so she's an example of, of one of people I, I really like. It was, was a real discovery. Someone I'd never heard right. of. Right. I think it's still barely known. Well, I've never heard of Jakob Frank before. Oh, he yeah. was probably my favorite story in the book. Could you tell us a little bit about him? I'll tell you. I grew up hearing about Jakob Frank because he's he's well he's not well known globally, but he's kind of well known in Poland. What a character! Uh, incredible Amazing. character. And yeah. Olga Tokarczuk, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago, the Polish novelist, mm. she wrote this giant book, hard to get through, but called um, "The Book of Jacob." Okay, great title, according yeah. to me. I love it. But it's a novel about his life, yeah. very close to his story. And he was a Polish Jew, a little bit of asterisk there, because you could also say he's a Bosnian Jew. Um, a, a Jew in the 18th century who traveled a lot to, to the Balkans, traveled a lot towards Constantinople, and became fascinated by this messianic, this Jewish messiah who declared himself the messiah in the 17th century aroused enormous excitement, enormous interest across the Jewish world. People were like, oh, it's finally happened. Mm. You know, we have, the we've been yeah. waiting 1500, you know, however, almost 2000 years. Yeah. It's happened. We have our Messiah. It happened. And then the Ottoman authorities are like, well, wait a minute. Here's a choice. Right. You can continue being the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And we'll fire, we'll fill, we'll shoot arrows at you until you're dead. We'll execute you by arrow. Or you can convert to Islam and save your life. And he's like, I'll take Islam. I'm Muslim now. <laughs> Smart man. Yeah. And then his followers are like, well, this is troubling because our Messiah is now Muslim. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and so they find an explanation. They're like, well, this must be part of the plan. Um, and so a sector, uh, part of them so keep cool. following him, keep following his descendants, and they kind of become Muslim Jews or crypto Jews, and, and other Jews reject them, and they become this thing in between. And this Polish Jew discovers this. He's like, this is amazing. Maybe I could become a person like this. And he's married, so he gets in with these crypto uh, messianic crypto Jews and brings that idea back to Poland and finds and creates like a cult around himself. And part of what the appeal of this belief system is that if you have the Messiah on your side, everything is allowed. All those complicated Jewish laws, all that Talmud, all that Torah, if you have the Messiah telling you what you can do, he can tell you sin because the more you sin, the more you can find redemption. So everything makes sense to me. Sex, so, I don't know. So like sin more, then you get more redemption. So so all the sexual laws, all the dietary laws, all that baggage of Judaism gets lifted. And so they're able to kind of party and have orgies and do whatever they want. And then he has a whole story. I won't bore your listeners with the complicated story of how he becomes Catholic and then stops being Catholic and bounces between empires. Um, but a wonderful story too. Um, not a discovery. So that story, at least though, yeah. I actually knew about for a long time, unlike the other one, which was totally obscure to me. But also there's a great, if you want to read a thousand pages about that, that novel will take you through his life page by page. It's pretty, pretty thrilling. I mean, say what you will about uh, his religion, but I see a lot of sense of it, you know? You have to sin it, in order to find grace. I mean, what's not logical about that? Let's and if you get you. forgiven for sinning, exactly. the more you sin, the more you can be forgiven. There is a logic. Didn't Rasputin later on practice something similar? Some in of Russia? that From... that same kind of idea, yeah, right. that you lower yourself to be brought up high. And um, if you want to be religious, but you also want to party a little bit, explore some things, yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's an. It's an attractive way. People find some sense in this logic yeah. across the centuries and across religion. So there must be Absolutely. something to it. All right. Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of time to cover the decidedly tragic 20th century Eastern Europe. However, I do want us to talk about something important that is often overlooked in the story of Eastern Europe, but which you do mention in the book. And that is our black sense of humor. You write the following, but amidst all our differences, Eastern Europeans share one legacy in common, and that is a gift for seeing comedy amidst tragedy. Is that simply a coping mechanism? I would say, I would just say a coping mechanism, not simply. I think it's actually hard to cope with things that are truly difficult. Um, and there is more violent history, like more... There's a sense of Eastern Europe, there are bad things that happen everywhere. But there, Eastern Europe, I think, is spe specific in having, for a lot of its history, no sense of stability or security. None of that kind of like hard ground that you're like, you know France isn't going to disappear. You know Russia isn't going to disappear. But a lot of these, you know, Poland disappeared. Hungary disappeared. Um, Slovenia took a very hard way of being born. You know, things, Yugoslavia disappeared. That the whole foundation of life and before that Austro-Hungary disappeared that your whole world can vanish within your lifetime multiple times that you have to find yourself on this kind of sweeping sea 
and find a place in it. And humor is a way of, of reestablishing this coordinates. Um, and I think it, you know, so I would say a coping mechanism, but not just a coping mechanism. It's hard to cope with things that are, are, are yeah. this hard. Yeah. You know? Well, the internet is making sure that this kind of unique brand of humor isn't going anywhere because Slavic memes That's are experiencing an absolute renaissance online and they're a big hit there. Um, in an ironic twist of fate, I feel like some form of uh, some uh, a digital form of kind of almost pan-Slavism or, uh, or of brotherhood over similar <laughs> destinies is emerging because of the memes now. The Gopnik and the, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's exactly. a little bit of, yeah. The, the Slavic squat and all of this stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. The uh, suit. Yeah. It unifies us. And how you open your grandma's, um, you know, uh, jar of cookies that looks very nice from the outside, but inside there's always just like needles and stuff for <laughs> sewing. Although, yeah. Yeah. Bottles of water that are actually bottles of vodka and you find that out the hard way and stuff like this. Absolutely. Anyway, um, let's talk about the many predicaments of Eastern European countries today. Obviously, we have the senseless war in Ukraine, but even without it, you believe Eastern Europe is in a bit of a pickle. I think you write the following in the book. Um, here we go. I think this is the last chapter. Many Eastern European nations face an odd predicament. They possess a surplus of history, but a deficit of useful narrative. That is, plenty of things have happened to them, but not enough has been done by them to establish a deeply rooted sense of shared destiny. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think, it's, you know, we were talking at the start of the podcast about history and politics and, and finding and having almost to in, often invent a, a usable past. Um, uh, that's a process every country goes through and a process that many countries have to like revise. In, uh, in America, we keep relitigating the Civil War, keep relitigating kind of traumas of the past. But in Eastern Europe, a lot of countries have to, almost the whole block really, since in our lifetimes, has had to find new coordinates of what it means to be Latvian, Lithuanian, Polish, Slovenian, Ukrainian, etc. Um, what does it mean to what what's the kind of essential, important ethos of that country? And what because politically you have to either stand up for it or or contest it. So you have this you have this very, you know, kind of difficult birthing process of figuring out what each of these countries not just what it is, but what it means. And you have things going in very different directions. Hungary has had a very strange kind of evolution of that, um, where they've gone back to their nomadic past or their imagined nomadic the past. And they really celebrate Mongolian this world of kind of pagan or Mongolian yeah. myth. And yet, if you go, you know, Budapest does not feel like a Mongolian city. It feels like not at all. No, I've been there. Not at all. Yeah. But then you'll go to a mall and there'll be huge boulders with, with runes or with, with, um, you know, pay with uh, step design, step, you know, they've really, and the government has really like poured money into the celebration of a step background. Poland is looking for its, for its colonel and the previous government, the peace government, it was all about World War II and a very specific vision of World War II, a very kind of anti-communist um, 
specific kind of group of people that they were celebrating and honoring and elevating above. And it's and in North Macedonia, it's just a. It's, I don't know, you've been to Alexander Spokane, the Great, the strangest. Yes. Yeah, Alexander the Great, and <laughs> then they've Spokane. had to walk it back. So he's still there, but he's kind of not Macedonian. But it's so all this thing, and so you have, in some ways, the more politics becomes, the more politics achieves, and uh, in, in, in some places, the more you kind of take care of some of the basics of life of, of EU membership and. Or this is kind of pre twenty twenty pre Ukraine, but the more of that the kind of bread and potatoes, meat and potatoes stuff gets done, the more politics you get into wrangling over what's the proper historical destiny, what's the proper um, image of the past that you should put forward, and contesting that and trying to use that as a wedge to you know mobilize voters on one side or the other. So you have a lot of right left discourse around that, and. Um, you're still, I mean, nation building is, is very, very new. You have countries that are, you know, Slovakia is historically brand new. Slovenia is brand new. Uh, the Baltics have had the, had that very short period of existence be- between the two world wars. And now they're starting anew. And people are, are in some ways it can be positive. Like I think there are new forms of, of government, you know, you can see like all kinds of innovation in Estonia around government and how government can be run, but it can also be really negative. You just have this constant relitigation of the past to inflame people and to drive wedges and to mobilize voting blocks. Um, but then in Ukraine, you look at that, like they, it is such a divided memory in that country and such a divided past and divided geographically. And if the book had come out, and the book was going to come out a year earlier, mm. the story of Ukraine would have been of a really, of another one of these, a kind of, you know, two different histories or two or more histories and presence in, in contestation. And now I think it's an incredibly unified country fighting an external enemy. So when there's like, when there's a bigger problem, these smaller problems, these kind of less existential problems of identity and history can vanish very quickly. And it's also interesting how personally your identity can switch or is prone to um, adapt. You know, I was always like Slovenian when I was in Slovenia, but then when I moved to Germany, mm. nobody knew where or what Slovenia is. So I started embracing a more of a Eastern European kind of identity. You know, hanging out with other folks from Eastern Europe or the, or the Balkans and understanding the appeal in it, which I wouldn't have if I stayed in Slovenia, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's very, and I think that idea of Eastern Europe in a way, you know, I grew up a little bit in Poland and a lot more outside of Poland. And it is, Eastern Europe is more of a thing that exists when you're outside of it, that you get grouped with other people and then you all, like, people group you with this block. And when you're grouped with them, you actually do discover there are things in common. Exactly. There is like, yeah. Uh, things you don't perceive like within Poland, it's such a, like, like a Pole and a Slovak is so different. And it's a totally different kind of Poles and Czechs almost think of themselves as opposites in their views on everything, especially religion and sex and just the two different societies. But you take Poles and Czechs and put them in, in England, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. And you discover, well, in a lot of ways, like, we, we have these like narrow seat, you know, this tunnel vision in country. But there's also like a bigger commonality 
um, you know, because a lot of the history in outline, in, in types of experience is shared. I mean, those same like kind of beat, beats in families, you get the same, you know, big pivotal years, the big pivotal events, slightly different, you know, shading on each of them. But it's a similar, you know, the history, and I was surprised even going to Albania, places that seem very remote from Poland, like Albania, Bulgaria, actually some real similarities, just even at the level of like architecture or architecture yeah. and like people's kind of attitude towards things from the West and attitude towards family and travel, very, very like kind of domestic, intimate things, very similar and quite different from something you'd find in, in Germany. Maybe we should institute like a mandated temporary exile for all Eastern Europeans for a, for a little bit. And then when they come back, they're like, hey, we can get along, you know? We're It'd all be good to like rotate a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, there's... Yeah, rotate, yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, kind of discover. Because you have to be out... You do, I do think you discover those commonalities once you're outside of your home country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I haven't thought about it before, but it makes perfect sense. Jakub, thank you so much. Uh, your book well, thank is you. so good. I really recommend it to everybody. Probably available everywhere, right? Pretty. There's yeah. a there's a UK version. There's a there's an American version. There's a, there's a German language version, and there's some more on the way. But um, anywhere English language books are sold. Okay. Pretty Any much. Eastern European translations coming up? There's some coming. There's awesome. some coming. Awesome. Uh, we're gonna have Hungary, Hungarian, Czech, and some more on the way. Awesome. But, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh yeah, absolutely fantastic. I enjoyed every second of it. Um do you have any social media? Uh where can people I do. follow your, your work? Uh they're not that active, but it's Mikanow Jay Mikanowski or Jacob Mikanowski on Instagram. Jay Mikanowski on Twitter is easiest, and then I have a website, Jacob Mikanowski, which has the uh Instagram link, Twitter link. Those are the main ones. What are you working and, uh, on right now? Do you have any other book coming? Any other books coming up? Or I do, but it's a little bit. It's in the early, early. stages, and I have to you keep don't want it kind of. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, not yet. Okay. Okay. Well, looking forward to it, and I but hope soon. we can yeah. do this again. Again, Absolutely. thank you so much. This is a an thank you so pleasure. much. It was a joy talking to you. Thank Oi. you. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe and follow on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. As always, eternal glory and gratitude to my producers who are supporting this show on Patreon, the kings and queens, Gordon, Yurechuk, Lorenzo, Veronica, Mila, Carmen, and Taichi. Without you, this pot would not have been possible at all. If you'd like to become a certified Tovarish or Tovarishica of the show too, head to Patreon, find Smart Cookies podcast on there and uh, become one. It's as simple as that. Thank you.